Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the IC Interviews. I'm Mary McDougall and I'm delighted to be joined by Stuart Widdowson, Manager of Odyssean Investment Trust, a UK smaller companies fund that IPO'd in April 2018. Before that, he worked at GVQ Investment Management and managed Strategic Equity Capital Trust. And before that, he was an Associate Director at Private Equity Group HG Capital. Stuart, thank you for joining me. How are you? Very well, thanks. Nice to join you, Mary. Now, I know you made the transition a while ago, but I wondered why you decided to move from investing in private markets to public ones. I think there were three reasons. Firstly, I'd always had an interest in investing in public companies. Um, I, I managed um, a small number of investments actually from university, uh, for better or worse. Um, uh, the second thing is I at HU, I got quite involved in a number of take privates or potential take privates of UK small companies. So I was very actively looking at that space. I think the third thing was private equity had started to change quite materially when I worked there. When I started working in the late 90s, typically um, as an exec, you might work with one other person, do a deal every six months. But as I started to leave, the deals were far less frequent than you worked on. You typically worked in much bigger teams, so the dynamics had changed. And I, I was quite attracted to actually making a, a slightly large number of investments in quoted companies every year, looking after a portfolio rather than just doing one or two investments every three or four years. Okay. Well, you seem to pride yourself in the fund literature and having a private equity mindset. How do you think applying a, a private equity mindset to public markets might give you an edge? Well, I think there are a whole uh, bunch of reasons. Um, the first one is, I think, the focus. Um, so our biggest cost is our time. And one of the things I learned from uh, the managing partner or senior managing partner at HG was really find an investment methodology, stick to it and focus and really only focus on companies that are going to meet that criteria because you're going to spend a much better uh, proportion of your time uh, looking at those investments. So that's the first thing. The second is we anchor our uh, the way we value companies against real-world valuations of what we think other people are prepared to pay for companies, not other stock market investors, but typically trade or private equity buyers. And that means we we don't really fall into the trap of overpaying for our assets, which, as many of your uh, listeners will know, a, a key theme of not, not losing money is important to make money over the long term. Um, I think the, the final thing is is really how we assess companies in terms of their quality. It's not just the valuation that matters, but actually investing in in what's a good business that maybe the market doesn't realize is as good as actually third parties do. So I think Ed and I have spent a lot of time looking at companies, working out are they going to be attractive to other people, not just on valuation, but also in terms of the attributes that they have. On the, on the sort of topic of making sure you don't overpay, have you participated in any IPOs? Uh, no, um, I only ever once, actually not recently, only ever once in my career, um, which was a company called Servalec, which would have been in 2013 or 14. And it was a very unusual situation because it was a corporate spin out of another listed company. It was actually a Singaporean listed group. And effectively, it was a management buyout that was done via an IPO. And the company came to market on a significant discount to its summer parts valuation. And it looked a very, very asymmetric situation. Generally, we're quite nervous about IPOs uh, because the, the nature of an IPO process means that the seller knows much more about the company than the buyers, uh, and it's rare to find them mispriced. 
Now, just zooming out a bit, how do you feel about the current investment outlook? I enjoyed the comment in your latest presentation saying conditions were reminiscent of the Odyssey, the drawing of a ferocious storm. So. Right. Uh, th- thank you. Thank you for that. So, um, yeah, the, 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 the two uh, elements of the Odyssey we're referring to were Scylla and Charybdis, the whirlpool and the sort of six-headed monster. And I think, you know, the, the two dominant themes are, are inflation and rising interest rates, we think, at the moment. And this is not a massive surprise. I mean, we, we were looking at um, how inflation might impact our portfolio companies in May, April last year, because we could see a head of steam coming through the system. Um, look, I think in, in that respect, inflation is, is going to really feature in a lot of companies' reports and commentary, we think, over the next 12 months. The companies that can actually potentially benefit from inflation, a lot of companies that can put pricing up, we think will not just defend, but over the medium term, actually enhance margins compared with the companies that might struggle to put up straight away and maybe be portrayed as not beneficiaries of inflation or, or, or detractors. Um, and they might see temporary price dislocations, which could prove interesting opportunities. And there's the third bucket of companies that are just going to really struggle in inflation and uh, where inflation is actually going to be quite detrimental to their business model and their earnings. Typically companies with poor market positions, typically companies with big commodity price risks that they can't pass on to customers typically companies in a weak part of the supply chain, maybe where they've got a small number of suppliers and a small number of customers and lots of competitors. But we think it's going to be definite, a, 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 you know, separating the wheat from the chaff year in terms of inflation. In terms of rising interest rates, the biggest issue we think is just ratings of companies. Um, for those of your listeners who are familiar with CAPM and the pricing model, very simply rising interest rates means growth companies will be worth less because their cash flows will be typically a back-end load that are worth less in the future. So we think it's going to be a real, again, you know, uh, the, the the tide's going to go out in terms of valuations, and we're going to see which companies actually have their val- current valuations underpinned and which ones are actually quite frothy. It's going to be a very fascinating year. Yeah, well, you've got a very concentrated portfolio, so you'll want to make sure that, that your companies are well-positioned. What's the pricing power like for the types of companies that, that you you invest in, we think pretty good. Um, most of them, you know, we we quite like investing in niche market leaders. And if you're the market leader, typically you should have pricing power in your market. And also, we like companies that have a high value added business models. So we don't tend to invest in companies that can't make at least ten percent operating margin. And the ideal company would be making high teens or low twenty percent. Um, margin, which, which basically indicates they're in a good position of supply chain, they do something that's difficult to replicate. And actually, that means they should be able to read on pricing power. Um, a really good example is, is a company in the portfolio called Almentis. It's a specialty chemicals company. And whilst it has some uh, raw materials it has to buy in, it actually owns uh, two of its key sources of raw material um, in the form of high-grade industrial talc, where it's got um, several decades of supply based in Finland and its mines, and also the world's highest grade, and we believe only commercially viable hectorite clay mine in California, which again has, I think, 50 or 60 or maybe even 70 years worth of supply there. So that's a company that actually for, for inflation, it, it potentially is a beneficiary inflation because it owns its own raw materials. So that, that that's one example. I think where we are we deliberately move away from, as I said, is companies that are really based on some commodity price um, uh, inflation that they can't pass on easily or quickly. 
Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you do have a very valuation focused approach. Um, the types of companies you look to own are growth stories, though, from what I can see. How do you balance value and growth potential and and work out how much you want to pay, given that you are long term owners? Mm. Look, I, th- I think it's an excellent question because we don't see ourselves as value or growth investors. We we really see the portfolio as a bunch of special situations that we think can generate our target returns. And our target returns are, are doubling um, our asset per share value every five years, which is the equivalent of 15% a year return. Um, simply, we want to find a decent company that's going through some sort of change, but we're not overpaying day one. And um, and the way we think about it is we want to find a situation where there's a very low chance of losing money, a very high chance of getting this plus 50% over three years or doubling over five, which is 15% a year return. But we want there to be some optionality above that, either through some sort of corporate activity or actually all the stars aligning and everything working uh, in our investment thesis. Um, so, again, we're not looking to beat the market in the short, medium or long term. Um, this is all about trying to make money for our clients. And we price our money. So there's there's always a margin of safety when we get in. So think of it as, look, if you can find if you can find a pound that's trading the market at 85p and that pound's worth £1.50 in three, three or four years' time, that, that's the situation that we're trying to find. And what are the key metrics or things you look out for to try and identify a special situation? Yeah, so um, we look at a whole bunch of valuation metrics. Um, when And it depends on the market cycle as well. So... Um, if you go back to March 2020, when the, there was a lot of turmoil in the market, looking at a company on a PE ratio was 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 very difficult because no one knew what the earnings were. So we look at um, for certain businesses, we look at long term price to book ratios. Elementus is a really good example. I think we on our entry price, then we paid half of book value. Historically, the companies trade at 1.8 times book value, so we had a pretty good valuation underpin there, provided the company didn't have to raise equity, and we were very confident it wouldn't, and it, and it hasn't. So we look at that. When we look at a company's attractiveness to trade and pri- to trade buyers, particularly look at EV sales multiples. So we'd say, look, if a company can, you know, it, if it's able with some synergies to make twenty five percent margins to a buyer, it's reasonable the buyer might pay up to two point five times EV sales for that company. And if we can buy it at one point five times EV sales, we know we're getting a, a big potential uplift from some sort of corporate activity. Uh, when we look at um, companies in the market, we have a um, it, we tend to make sure that we're not buying on sensible, you know, on P ratios that are above long term averages. So we don't buy stocks because we think they're going to get taken over. The the takeover is is either parachute if things go wrong or the supernormal return if things go right. We always assume we're going to exit to the market at a higher rating than we bought at. Yeah, that's, I was I was going to ask, are you looking for takeover returns? But you've you've just answered that. Uh, um, uh, if they happen, great. But they're, they're not they're not the uh, they're not the uh, uh, they're not why we buy stocks. Okay, I wondered if your background might help you sort of spot potentials. Anyway, well, looking through, <laughs> we have had a, we have had a good run. I have to say, I mean, um, you know, the, the market's been you know we don't tend to have a correlated return with growth or value investors. But we have had a lot of corporate activities you, you might have picked up over the last particularly nine months, actually. I think we've had uh, four or five companies bid for, um, which you know has helped returns. 
we're not surprised because a lot of them were very mispriced. And, and we felt a lot of investors were focused on COVID recovery stocks. And there were other stocks that were pretty mispriced and, and private equity and trade have got lots of capital and borrowing costs are low. Um, so um, we wouldn't be surprised to see a bit more, um, but it's not why we buy stocks. Do you tend to sell them before the takeover actually happens? Because usually the, the, the stock will re-rate once, once the bid comes in. Um, we on normal if we think that a normal situation if we own a reasonable proportion of the company more than three percent we typically hold it into the bid. If we don't own very much of the stock's equity and we think there's a very low chance of a counter bidder, and um, the, the the bid is is very attractive, we might move some stock on. Um, it, it, it's all case by case. You know, if we think a bid is very attractive or there's some there's some encouragement needed to get a bidder to to bid we might give an irrevocable if we think the bid is not very attractive we won't give an irrevocable um a really good example is vectura um, which is one of the stocks that we had in the portfolio that got taken over last year there was an initial bid from carlisle which we didn't think was particularly attractive so we would never have um, signed an irrevocable and that was fortunate because there ended up being, uh, as some of your uh, listeners might be aware, a bidding war between Philip Morris and Carlisle. And the ultimate bid ended up being quite a long way higher than Carlisle's initial bid. So it's, it's always on a case-by-case basis. I guess an example of one that you have been selling down is Clinogen. Mm-hmm. That's just still in the process of being bid for. So yes, some news this morning, actually, it's, it's had a revised offer that's slightly higher, albeit the timetable's moved out. Now we did sell some stock out because it was trading as 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 you might have been aware at any pretty high premium above the uh, initial uh, bid that Treaton had put in. Um, uh, Clinogen had been one of the biggest holdings in our portfolio prior to the bid. The bid spec came in and it was just a very very high proportion of the portfolio. So from a risk perspective, we took some money off the table and set at a pretty healthy premium to the to the then bid from Treaton and and not far off what what the revised bid was. Another thing that you seem to place emphasis on is the chairman mm. and sort of looking for new chairmen and maybe that that could help turn around a company. Why why is this something you look at specifically? Yep. So again, small companies, very different to big companies, trying to push change to the big companies, like trying to change the direction of an oil tanker. You know, you just, it just takes a long time and it's very difficult to do. In comparison, a small company fewer people, typically fewer operations, much easier and quicker to go through a change agenda in 18 months to, to 36 months, which is what we get quite attracted to because um, quite quite often the investors won't price in that until it's started to be delivered. So you've got this period, if there is a change agenda with a new chairman, maybe changing some management team, you've got a period where no one sees any value upside. And a lot of the stocks that we've invested in the past, and we think we're quite good at spotting this upside, they might be making half the operating profits they should do if properly run, but none of that's priced in. Um, it's very difficult to achieve, typically with, with an incumbent chairman in place who's been there some time, um, because uh, there might be some strategic or operational changes needed that are equivalent of, of the sacred cows. And you need often a new pair of eyes to come in and say, actually, let's revisit some of these decisions. Let's go and you know look at things under a different lens, maybe with a different management team that are more uh, able to extract the value out of this business. Um, and it's very difficult to do that without a new chairman. Yeah. Can you give any examples of companies that you've 
sort of invested in on on that basis right going back in the mists of time um I, we were quite large shareholders in a company called rpc which is a plastic packaging company um interestingly the i think we invested in the company in 2006 7 um and uh over the previous um about 13 or 14 years it had failed to generate um cash return on capital above its cost of capital because it had done a very large acquisition in the mid 90s which it hadn't integrated properly um the um the situation there was that the the company wasn't the exec team weren't being forced to integrate its 50 sites and really get the benefit of being a much bigger business a new chairman came in and actually worked with the same exec team in that situation and they they closed about 20% of the sites, reallocated the production to the remaining 80% of the sites, which was very, very effective for, um, for basically generating the same level of turnover from far fewer sites and far less capital. And in that case, as, as some of your um, uh, listeners might be aware, it really catalyzed a step change in the performance of that stock. And it went on to go into the FTSE 250 and ultimately get taken out. So it can happen. It's just it, sometimes it needs a catalyst and a different set of eyes and people around the table. And you have um, you have an exclusionary ESG approach, mm-hmm. um, excluding certain sectors such as tobacco and weapons and others. How much of um, your investable universe does this rule out? So I think that the big one is is resource companies, um, and um, in small cap there aren't that many companies that do tobacco. For example, um, you know there are a few pub companies which we wouldn't invest in, but we think ultimately in our size range, uh, core size range, it takes out about seventeen percent of the addressable market in terms of both market cap and numbers of companies. Are you um, are you comfortable with the level of your average net cash position at the moment? I believe it was eight percent um, on average last year and twelve percent at the year end. Yep, it's within the normal bounds i think over the long term we've typically run a net cash position of about seven to eight percent um the reason we do that is uh we use the investment company structure to allow us to invest in a concentrated portfolio and we're not looking to enhance returns through gearing um i think uh what what we tend to find is we can be hunting a stock down for a long time and wanting to invest but not finding liquidity and then one day the liquidity comes and it's great to have some cash on the side so you're not forced to sell something to go and buy the stock you want to buy. Uh, going back to October, we bought, um, in fact, we quintupled our position in Curtis Banks, um, buying 7% of the company roughly in a single transaction, uh, which was, I think, 6.5% of the NAV. Um, and we had that in cash, so we could make that, tra- you know, do that transaction. We bought it at a very, very good price. So that's a real example of, of why we take the cash. I'd expect it to trend down from 12 towards sort of high single digit, mid single digits over the course of the year as market conditions and, and, and investment conditions allow. What was the attraction with Curtis Banks? Yeah, it, it was a, a, a classic, we felt, uh, a asymmetrical investment opportunity. Um, we got in at a very attractive price. There'd been an overhang for a number of shelters that had looked to sell over the previous few months and they'd struggled to find buyers on the other side. It's it's a sub two hundred million pound company with with rather limited potential buyers. Um, so we got in a very good price um, as part of a, what's called a clear up transaction, uh, when four or five sellers sell to two or three buyers, but it's done on one day, you know, in one single transaction. And so we bought it very keenly. 
um, valuation opportunity, number one. The second thing was the company had the significant potential for self-help. So it makes low 20% uh, operating margins at the moment, 21 to 22. They have a stated goal to get the company to make 30% margins in the next couple of years through uh, an IT transformation program. Um, and none of that was reflected in the, the rating that we bought at. Um, this is a very stable company. It, it, as some of your readers might be aware, it, it looks after the wrap around more sophisticated SIPs. Um, and the recurring revenue is very, very high in the company because, as, as, as many people know, you tend to hold your SIP in the same provider for 20, 30 years or so. So, very stable revenue, margin improvement upside, cheap valuation. Um, the catalyst, the longer term catalyst, said was margin improvement. The shorter term thing that was quite interesting was was interest rates because Curtis Banks is unusually a beneficiary of rising interest rates because um, because it holds a reasonable amount of client cash that it takes a small can make, take a small amount of uh, margin on as well. Um, so again, rising interest rates actually perversely quite positive for that company, and it's rare to find that in small cap. Yeah. And in your latest interim report, the chairman said that the part of the market in which the portfolio manager invests in is often ripe with mispricing. Um, why is this? Oh, gosh, a whole bunch of reasons. Um, the Some of them are um, uh, structural and some of them are more cyclical. Um, the structural ones are typically within small cap. Tend, a lot of the money tends to be managed by a small number of very large small company funds um, that manage two, three billion or so in the strategy. And to really make it worthwhile for them to go and invest in companies, they need to typically be investing in bigger small caps. So we tend to find that there's a natural re-rating of our portfolio companies when they get to 450 or 500 million, say, and below that, um, there tends to be a discount. The second thing is really around AIM. So in the past, uh, in the days of USM, AIM's predecessor, you, uh, you know, USM companies used to trade at a discount to full-list companies. But there's been a big growth, as your readers might be aware of, of these IHT portfolio services, uh, which um, has funneled lots of money into AIM stocks, typically above 100 million. So quite often that AIM stocks are trading above the ratings of full-list companies. And a lot of small company managers have up there thresholds they're allowed to invest in AIM and typically invest in AIM companies quite often over full-risk companies. And if a full-risk company is able to move to AIM, it tends to re-rate. So there's a whole bunch of sort of assets that are full-risk companies that can't move to AIM or won't move to AIM for various reasons that are less attractive to the, to the market and they're quite mispriced. So we're seeing that at the moment. The second is weight of, the third is sort of weight of money moves. So again, um, if you remember the the bounce post the vaccine being announced, loads of money rushed into reopening trades, such as in the leisure sector, in the, you know, in the cons- other consumer sector. Um, whereas actually there were mispriced stocks already that just didn't participate in that bounce because people didn't want to buy them at the time. And we, you know, we, it's public record we invested a lot in in healthcare stocks at that time that weren't COVID beneficiaries because no one wanted to own them. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why uh, why there's lots of anomalies, um, but we don't think they're going away. Um, they've been there for all of my career, and I'm sure they'll continue to be there when I retire one day. Can you or would you invest in AIM stocks within the trust? Uh, we can and we do, but we're very, very selective about the types of AIM stocks we invest in. Um, many of them fail our um, our criteria because they are valued at premiums to so their takeover valuations. We're very nervous about those stocks because if things 
the company has a bit of a wobble. They tend to derate very, very aggressively. Um, so we're, we're nervous about those types of AIM stocks. If they have had a wobble and they're mispriced the other way and quite cheap, then they get interesting for us. Um, but we do a lot of work on understanding who's already a shareholder in that company. And if it's an expensive AIM stock with all the IHT portfolio services as big shareholders, we tend to be very nervous and we tend to look the other way. What's the portfolio turnover? Over the cycle, typically about 25%. And we'd typically be buying um, of that 25% of buying every year, typically about half it's buying companies we already own. And we, we tend to make four to six new investments a year. So it's it's pretty low turnover. And in reality, we don't need to find many new investments every year to make it work for us. Another thing that was in your interim report was that you believe the two areas for potential NAV growth are healthcare and life sciences and B2B media. Mm-hmm. You touched on healthcare earlier. Um, what's the attraction with B2B media? Well, we think it's it's a late cycle COVID recovery situation. So as you might be familiar, a number of these companies have events businesses, quite often face-to-face, and those were absolutely decimated because of COVID. You know, because people couldn't travel or weren't allowed to go to various countries, et cetera, or weren't permitted or didn't want to go to these events. Ultimately, we think person-to-person interactions will come back um, because that's part of what we all like doing as, as uh, uh, you know, in terms of businesses, networking and, and the like. Um, when those businesses come back, the drop-through of revenue is very, very high. So there's a recovery situation in, in those stocks. The second element is um, they... Uh, what's left in the businesses tend to be very high quality recurring revenue. So, so the, the non-events revenue. And if you were to call it a software company, it would probably be on double the rating, <laughs> but it has very similar criteria, you know, high recurring revenue, pricing power. You know, Your Money in particular has a business called Fast Markets, uh, which we think is a very, very high quality business, which is almost worth the whole of Your Money itself. Um, so there's a some interesting sum of parts argument there. Um, the one of their bigger peers at the moment, Informer, um, is is actually selling as announced is going to sell its professional information division over the next few months, and people expect that to go for, go for quite high multiple. So that might actually shed the light on the valuation opportunities lower down the market cap. Uh, and again, we think Wilmington and Euro Money are pretty attractively priced. And the third thing is optionality. Both of them have got now uh, net cash balance sheets. Um, in the case of Wilmington, actually, it's just sold its uh, AMT training business. Uh, they didn't make any money for 20 odd million pounds, so which is totally digging of the balance sheet. Now, the companies are grossly overcapitalized, um, and either they can do some potentially quite interesting MA or they look um, potentially quite attractive to, um, to private buyers who could, who could basically gear up the businesses as private companies. And 35% of the portfolio, or at the time of your last report, was mm-hmm. in industrials. Mm-hmm. What is the attraction to this part of the market? Well, these are specific types of industrials. So um, we've got, uh, there are a number of names there that won't just benefit from the world getting back to normal in terms of so post-COVID. But these companies um, uh, have gone through and are going through uh, particular elements of self-help. So improving operating margins through rationalizing their manufacturing footprint. And, and a lot of this started pre-COVID. Um, and also investing to uh, enhance their sales growth in the future. So the margins are, we think, well below where they could be. Um, and uh, if you 
assume that they, there's any type of recovery. And actually, if, if they even get to just their historic margins, there's a lot of upside on these stocks. Um, but actually, if they enhance their margins to be better than before, like we think they will do, there's a lot of upside. Uh, and we quantified this in our Q3 presentation. You know, which, com- and so Sorry, we, which companies in particular? Um, so Elementus, um, Dialyte, um, uh, um, uh, Zar, uh, which had a very good trading statement actually uh, last week, and uh, also Flowtech. So I think one of the other things you were querying about, and you know, these stocks came under a bit of pressure in Q4 because of concerns about supply chain and raw material input pricing. The, these stocks were quite unusual in the industrial space because they didn't profit worn. And we think that's because not just that they got good business models, but actually there was this self-help that was allowing them to defend their earnings level. Um, so again, we think they're pretty attractive. Uh, Elementus has attracted, I think, four bids from two different bidders over the last 12 months, all of which we felt were nowhere near reflective of fair value. So we think there's potential bid interest there over time. Um, Flowtech operates in a consolidating sector um, and at some point might become part of a bigger company. Zar, uh, the electronic print head business, it's the only one of its peer group that's independent. Um, and Dialyte um, operates in global markets, largely North America. Uh, and it's probably an accident of history. It's a UK listed company. So again, there's, there's some potential M&A uh, opportunities for all those stocks over the medium to long term. Uh, we're not rushing for them to be bid for today, but we think that provides an underpin and, and some upside over and above normal recovery as well. In your presentation, you make a point of saying what the proportion of overseas revenue is for the portfolio and how that's higher than the benchmark. Um, you've spoken a bit about bids. Is this Does having a higher proportion of overseas revenue, does that increase the likelihood of a, a takeover? Um, we wouldn't say necessarily. It all depends on the characteristics of that company. You know, if, if one of these companies had a massive pension deficit, it's probably less attractive for a takeover target than a peer that has all its revenue in the UK and no pension deficit. I think what it highlights is, it highlights a really good example. If this company was was maybe listed in the US for the equivalent type of company, it'd be on a much bigger rating. And the most likely buyers of that company are US or international conglomerates that maybe look at valuation in a very different way to, to UK, UK investors. Um, we quite like the geographic balance as well because, um, you know, quite often it means that you're not just dependent on what's going on in the UK economy. So you've got a much more of a sort of spread of your business. Um, and, uh, you know, you've got, um, you know, you've got companies that just operate in a niche that, that, that are, um, um, you know, potentially much more interesting to a whole bunch of different buyers than, than just a company based in the UK. I mean, quite often we speak to our investors about this and say, you know, the mindset is UK small companies is the UK domestic economy. Not necessarily. Lots of good companies based here that are international. Yeah. Well, we've talked a bit about bids. Do you worry about the listed universe shrinking in the UK? Um, I think look, I think it's an excellent question. My gut feel is it will probably start to move the other way at some point in the short to medium term. Um, the, the IPO market is quite active. Uh, and I think look, one of the attractions of, of, of private equity for some of these companies is, has been the, the record low level of borrowings. That's probably going to change. I think IPO might start to become more attractive as an exit route than, than saying to another private equity house um, because a lot of that's pinned, pinned by, by very low um, cost of debt. So look, if I had to run a stock of 100 companies, uh, a portfolio of 100 companies that 
that have these criteria, I'd be concerned. We always find opportunities to 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 deploy capital into our strategy. Would you ever own an unlisted company in the trust? Uh, we are able to. Um, it's typical. We can put up to twenty percent of the nav into unlisted. Uh, sorry, unquoted. Um, aim technically is unlisted, <laughs> um, but we um, we only tend to do that where a company is being taken private. We're not going to go and invest in in private companies um, that have. Uh, you know, no connection with the the uh, the quoted markets. Now, the board of Edison has made a takeover bid for Strategic Equity Capital, which is the trust you used to manage when you worked at GVQ Investment Management, as I said in my intro, before Gresham House was appointed manager. This comes on the heels of Harwood um, taking over and renaming Gresham House Strategic, another UK smaller companies trust. How do you feel about the proposed merger um, between Odyssean and SEC, and how has it gone down with Gresham House? Um, well, there's there's not much I can say about this. The um, the as you're familiar, the boards of investment trusts are independent of the manager, and uh, I think it's fair to assume this is a board to board initiative. Um, look, I think uh, the what we find. You know, because we manage an investment trust, we go and speak to a lot of our own shareholders as well. There's a general push amongst um, uh, particularly the wealth managers for slightly larger investment trusts, and typically the threshold is is, is around sort of two fifty three hundred million. So the, the the wealth managers generally prefer fewer, slightly bigger trusts because there are liquidity benefits and scale benefits, and that will tend to focus um, into uh, less discount volatility over time and better liquidity. So I think there's a whole bunch of reasons why uh, why selected um, mergers might make sense, um, but ultimately, um, you know, it's it's a board to board discussion. Yeah, if you can pass on the benefits of scale as well, that's a, mm. a good thing for shareholders. Would the um, smallest market cap that you could own in a combined entity would that be any different to what it is now? Um, look, we don't see any particular reason yeah. to change our investment strategy. You know, we're focused on companies smaller than two fifty. We tend to very rarely go below 150, uh, and whatever happens, that won't change. Yeah, thanks. And um, final question, a bit of a different one. Who have been your investing role models, or, or who have you learned most from? Oh, a whole bunch of people. It's uh, we have the um, the joy doing what we do. For, it's almost a permanent apprenticeship of, of of watching other people and learning from them. I think the. Within the business, um, Ian Armitage, the chairman of Edition, the manager, um, and Christopher Mills, the, the chief exec of our JV partner, uh, industry veterans, if they'll let me say that, they've spent, I think, combined, I don't know, is it 70 or 80 years investing in smaller companies? Um, look, it's difficult not to learn things from them. They've both had fantastic track records and, and continue to make very good money for clients. Um, I think in, in a more broader sense, I think, look, certain investment books have made a material impact on the way I think about investing. Um, three, just to highlight, um, Anthony Bolton's book, Investing Against the Tide. You know, he's the ultimate special situations investor. We learned a lot from him. Um, there was a book that I wish I'd been given the first day I started in the investment industry called The Little Book That Beats the Market by Joel Greenblatt, um, which is about reasonably priced quality investing. Uh, basically, Look at PE and return on capital, and uh, why return on capital companies provide you that overpay, uh, make make you good money over the long term. 
And the final one is Pat Dorsey's book, um, which is uh, the little book that builds wealth. Because actually, this this is what our industry is all about. It's trying to create wealth for your shareholders. And that introduced the concepts of moat-based investing, that invest in companies with high moats. And really, I think what what you know our process is really about trying to take the best of everything in and apply it to a very small number of stocks and try and make money for people over the long term. And um, that's what we've done effectively, taking everything that we think really works and put our own touch on it and uh, and uh, try and uh, execute it consistently. Great. Well, thank you so much. That's great to end with some things to add to our reading list. Um, I really appreciate your time. That was really interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 